So if you'll turn to Psalm 119, uh, we'll look at God's Word and see what God's word has to say for us today. We've started a series in Psalm 119. The Psalms are a collection of 150 prayers covering every emotion you can imagine and encouraging us to bring all of those to a God who loves us and cares for us. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. It has 176 verses divided into 22 sections, and each section is uh, written for a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And every verse begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's written to be memorized. It's written to be learned. And our goal for this series is for us to see that God's word is a gift that is both valuable and useful. That's what we wanna see for this series. And there's two resources I wanna tell you about that I think will be a help to you. First, um, Exodus Music released um, a project recently, last Sunday, uh, called Psalm 119, Volume 1. We have CDs available today. Um, If you want one, they're a $10 suggested donation uh, to pick up one of these. That's just to cover the cost of making them. Um, And we would love for you to grab one of these. Also, it's available anywhere digital music sold, or it's also available for free on Noise Trade, okay? Uh, And so it's a great resource to help you get God's word into your mind. It's just the words of the psalm set to music, and it's a really great project. The second resource I wanna tell you about is called the ESV Psalter Journal. Uh, ESV is a version of, it's a translation of the Bible. It's what we use at Exodus. And this journal takes, uh, takes God's word and puts part of the psalm on this side, and then this is a blank sheet. And so it's really helped me as I've used it to study God's word to be able to write a lot and journal my thoughts as I engage with God's word. I think it's about $20, so it's a little bit of money, but it's a good investment in your relationship with Jesus. And I wanna encourage you to consider using that as we go through uh, Psalm 119 together. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this about Psalm 119. It's gonna be on the screen. He said this, it contains no idle word. In other words, every word's important. There's no throwaways in Psalm 119. Then he says this, the grapes of this cluster are almost to bursting full with the new wine of the kingdom. The more you look into this mirror of a gracious heart, the more you will see in it. Now notice, he calls it the mirror of a gracious heart. So here's what he's saying, that Psalm 119, when we look at Psalm 119, what we're looking at is a heart that's been transformed by the grace of Jesus. What we're looking at is a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. And when we read Psalm 119, we're seeing what our hearts are to feel and think about God's word. So Psalm 119 serves as a mirror of a gracious heart. And then he writes this, placid on the surface as the sea of glass before the eternal throne, it yet contains within its depths an ocean of fire. And those who devoutly gaze into it shall not only see the brightness, but feel the glow of the sacred flame. Now, think about for a moment a nice, cool spring night or a nice, cool fall night. Those that we won't see again until like October, right? Just think about those nights and and think about sitting around a campfire and gazing into this flame 
And if you ever, you know, you know, you know that feeling where you're just looking at the fire and you kind of get lost in thought, just looking at this thing burn. And then feeling the warmth on your skin, cool breeze blowing, but this warmth from the fire. That's what, that's what Spurgeon wants us to experience as we look into God's word. He wants us to, to, to gaze and to get lost in gazing in to God's word. That's what he wants for us. So that we can see just beautiful things from God's word. And so that's our hope for this series, that we would just get lost in gazing into his word. And today, as we look at verses one through eight, that's my prayer, that we would just get lost in, in, in gazing at his word. So verse one, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you give us eyes to gaze deeply and devoutly into your word today so that we might see wonderful things from your word. Holy Spirit, would you open up our hearts and our minds? Would you give us eyes to see today? And then would you give us grace to run to you, not from you, to run to you to find our hope and our help as we see what uh, your word tells us, what your word reflects to us of a gracious, changed heart. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus today. Amen. Now, in this section, we're going to see two things. Uh, We're going to see that God's word is given for our good, and that's verses one through four. And then in verses five through eight, we're going to see that joy is found in dependent obedience on him. So let's start with God's word is given for our good. Now, Psalm 119 wants us to see God's word as a gift that's valuable and useful. Not either or, but both. It's valuable and useful. And Psalm 119 uses seven different terms for God's word, each with a slightly different nuance about the word of God. Now, we're going to go through these because it's important. The first word that, uh, that Psalm 119 uses is law. The Hebrew word for this is Torah. It means the covenant teaching of the covenant-keeping God. And so what the law teaches us is first that God wants to be in covenant with us. He, he wants to have a relationship with us, which should be staggering. That God wants a relationship with his people should stagger us. And then the covenant teaching of the covenant-keeping God tells us how we enter into that covenant. He tells us this is how you have a relationship with me. The second word is testimonies. This is what the covenant-keeping God solemnly testifies to be his will. So this is God revealing his heart to us. This is God saying, this is what I want for you. This is God opening his heart and revealing himself to us in his revealed will. Third word used for God's word in Psalm 119 is precepts. This is what the covenant-keeping God has appointed to be done. So God is God, we are not. 
He gets to say what we are to do and we get to obey. That's how things work in the world. He's God, we're not. He gets to say, this is how this should be done. That's his precepts. His statutes are, that's the next word used for God's word in Psalm 119. His statutes are what the covenant-keeping God has laid down as law. These are things that are binding, and it gets at the idea of permanent. So these statutes are not changing, okay? These don't change with polls. They don't change with popular opinion. These are fixed standards with permanence from God. Next word is commandments. This is what the covenant-keeping God has commanded. This reinforces the idea that God and God alone has authority to decree or command what is to be done. And they're given for our care and protection. God's not being arbitrary. He's saying, this is my world. This is how you're to live in it. And when we live in it, in his world, in his way, we experience his kindness and blessing to us. Rules, that's another word. This is what the covenant-keeping God has ruled to be right. This is what he's judged to be right. The last word is word. And this is what the covenant-keeping God has spoken. And it really encompasses all of what God has said. Now, Psalm 119, verses one through eight, uses six of these terms, and all of them are given for our good. Now, in all of these, we need to understand that God gives us his word. He does not start a conversation. God is declaring what is, not debating what should be, okay? So God is supreme. We are his subjects. God is supreme. We are his subjects. He is communicating his word to us. And our role is to submit to his word. Now, rather than submit to him, we kick against him because we want to be supreme. We want to be in charge. We want to be the one dictating to those around us what ought to be. But God giving us his word reminds us that he is supreme. We are his subjects and we are to submit to him. But also in all of these parts of God's word, God is the covenant keeper. So God is the one who is committed to his people in all their rebellion, in all their sin, in all their wickedness, in all the ways we don't keep his covenant, in all the ways we don't follow his commandments, in all the ways we don't submit to his rules. God still pursues and loves and cares because he's the covenant-keeping God. If it was up, for us, if it was up to us to be the covenant-keeping people, we'd be done. But thanks be to God, the gospel is about a covenant-keeping God who loves us and cares for us and never lets us go. And he loves us so much that with all our covenant breaking, this covenant-keeping God sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again to forgive us for our covenant breaking and to bring us into relationship with him. So all this word is not just from God as supreme, though he is, he's the supreme covenant-keeper who enters into relationship with us and calls us to himself. And in Psalm 119, blessing is found in covenant with this God, living in submission to God and his word. And we see what that kind of life looks like in verses one through four. 
He says, blessed are those, verse one, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, also who do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So we see here what the blessed life looks like. Now remember, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. So each line of the couplet kind of um, say one thing. So in verse one, he's saying that a blessed life is a blameless way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And what that means is they walk in the covenant teaching of the covenant keeping God. They walk in the law of the Lord. And so a blameless life is one that walks in the covenant teaching of the covenant keeping God. So we relate to God in the way he's called us to relate to him. So rather than rebelling against him, we submit to him. Rather than fighting against him, we surrender to him, which is where joy is found. And rather than thinking that the way I enter into relationship with God is to earn a bunch of brownie points by my obedience, which is what many of us believe, we think that if I'm gonna be in relationship with this God, I've gotta check all the boxes, do everything right. That's not, that's not, what the Bible teaches. And rather than live that way, we understand the covenant teaching of the covenant keeping God is that we trust his grace. We place our faith and hope in him to enter into relationship with him. And so the blessed life is a blameless way. And the way that we are to walk is we walk in the covenant teaching of the covenant keeping God. And so we walk trusting his grace to care for us and to keep us. Second thing, a blessed life keeps his testimonies. Verse two, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Again, these lines rhyme ideas. And so this idea of a testimony, remember, this is what God solemnly testifies to be his will. And this is really good because what's rhyming here, what rhymes with God's will is that we would seek him with our whole heart. And that's really good news. That that God wants us to seek him. And God wants us to find him. God's not playing hide and seek with you. He's not playing hard to get with you. He wants to be found by you. And so we seek him. He wants us to seek him with our whole heart. And then verses three and four, a blessed life walks in submission to his ways. Look at verse three, who, do, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And so a blessed life is one that walks in submission to God. We walk in submission to God's ways. We walk in submission to his precepts. What God has commanded to be done, we walk in submission to that. And that's a blessed life does that. Now, this blessed life is available to all who place their faith and hope in Jesus. You don't earn this life. Now, now, it's really important that we understand the Psalms here. He's not saying that you become blessed because you do these things. He's saying the blessed ones do these things. So if you're hearing me say, I gotta check a bunch of boxes to be blessed, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the Bible is the blessed ones live in this way. Not that those who do these things are blessed. It doesn't go both ways, it goes one way. The blessed ones live in this way. And those, 
those who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ are blessed. And so please don't leave here today thinking that the answer to your life is to do all the right things. Please leave here understanding that the covenant teaching and the covenant keeping God is trust Christ alone to be blessed. And it's available to anyone who will place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone. And so God's word is given for our good. It tells us that anyone who wants to be can be a blessed one and that the blessed one submits to God and his word with his whole heart and life. Secondly, we see here in Psalm 119 that joy is found in our humble obedience to him. That joy is found in our humble obedience to God. This blessed man is this blessed one is described in verses one through four, and then the psalmist wants it in verse five. Look at verse five. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Now that's a prayer that he's praying. He's praying to God, God, I want my ways to be steadfast. Why would he pray that? Because they're not. And he says, God, oh God, would you make my ways steadfast in keeping your statutes. Now, why would he want it? Why would he want his heart to be steadfast? Well, because there's joy that comes when we obey God in his word. There's joy that comes when we obey God in his word. Now, we are blessed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We don't earn that. We don't merit that. We don't earn anything by our obedience, but we do experience a lot by our obedience. We don't deserve anything because of our obedience, but we often discover much in our obedience. And there is blessing when we obey God and his word. When we live life in submission to God and his word, we experience what God has for us. Maybe you have a memory where there was that one present under the Christmas tree and you remember seeing that and watching it as long as it was under there. You knew it had your name on it and you wondered, man, could that be the thing? And Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whenever you open presents and your experience comes and you open that thing and it's the thing. And you're so excited about getting the thing and none of us who get the thing will put that in a corner and just look at it from a distance. No, we don't, we, we open it up, we start experiencing it, enjoying it, and being engaged in the thing we wanted. Joy is found when we engage with what God has freely given. We don't earn it, but man, our obedience allows us to experience things. We don't deserve it, but man, our obedience allows us to discover some things. And the writer wants us to understand that joy is found in humble, humble obedience to God and his word. That's where joy is found. Now, in verse 6, the psalmist gets specific about some specific joy that he wants. So he prays in verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 6, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Notice he's dependent on the Lord. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. God, you're my only hope for this then I shall not be put to shame. Now, shame's tricky to talk about. Uh, 
in, in the Bible because in Christ, our sin and shame have been removed. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so before God, all of our sin and shame have been removed. We're completely forgiven, completely loved, righteous before God. But that's not the kind of shame that this psalmist is talking about right here. He's talking about the shame that comes before, before people when we're found in sin. Now, if you and I choose to live apart from God and his word, we will experience shame before men. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but we will be outed at some point. Our sin will be made public at some point. And some of us think our sin is hidden, and it's not. We think nobody's ever going to know what we're doing. You will be found out. And honestly, that's God's grace to you if you are. The psalmist says, I don't want to experience shame. I don't want that experience of shame on my life, on those around me, on those entrusted to me. I don't want to experience that kind of shame. And so he prays, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. And so he's praying for grace here. God, give me grace that I would not be put to shame. Fix my eyes on your commandments, oh God. And so the psalmist wants us to experience the joy that comes from humble obedience to God. And he continues in verse 7 saying, I need you to teach me, O God. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. He's saying to God, I want to submit to you. I want to learn from you. Teach me. I want to learn. And then he says, I need you to help me. Verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. He says, God, God, I need you. The only way I'm going to obey you is if you don't leave me. I need you, God. I can't do this without you, God. I will keep your statutes if you don't leave me. That's, you're my only hope, he's saying. And so the blessed life of the Psalms is only lived in humble dependence on God and his word. And so what Psalm 119 wants us to see is that God's word is given for our good and joy is found in humble obedience to him. Now, if we remove any of those things, they, they fall apart. If we remove humble obedience, then we're not finding joy. We're finding despair because we're trying to do it on our own. And then God's word doesn't feel good because it feels like this weight. But if we understand that God's word is given for our good and we find joy when we humbly obey, then we kind of understand what God's word is given for. It's given for our good. It really is. It's not to be a weight. It's not to be a, a checklist that, that, that just causes despair or pride. It's for our good. And we find great joy when we humbly obey what it says. And so how do we apply all this into our lives? Well, two things. First, um, we apply this together. We apply this together. Now look at verse 1 of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Verses 1 through 4 is a communal experience. He's talking to a people. Now, as Americans, we are hardwired for self-centered individualism. 
Our idea of Christianity is me and my Bible. That's, that's kind of, or me and Jesus. That's, that's our idea of American Christianity. And that's foreign to the Bible. The Bible describes Christians as part of God's family. When you become the son of God, you become a brother to others. When you become a daughter of the king, you become a sister in the family of God. And so this idea here, even in the Psalms, is saying that there is a people that are doing this together. And so God calls us to live in the family of God, and he calls us to live in community. That's the value that is being expressed here. It's one of our values here as a church. And one of the ways we live that out is in community groups. And our community groups pursue one another so that Jesus is seen and disciples are made. That's a place for you to be known and to be cared for, a place for you to be pursued, where you know, hey, there are people in the world who actually care about me. There are people in the world who care about my walk with Jesus and whether I'm growing or not. And then there are people that are available for me to pursue as well. And so our community groups pursue one another so that Jesus is seen and disciples are made. And we want this for you, not from you. We want this for you because we're made to do this together, not alone. Now, there's a lot going on at Exodus, and I believe, I really do believe that we're entering into a strategic time in the history of our church. And if I were the enemy, I would be aiming at our unity and community right now. I'd be aiming at our pastors. I'd be aiming at at their families, and I'd be aiming at the unity and community of our church. That's where I'd be going. And so we as a people need to be vigilant right now. We need to be aware. We need to be aware and we need to protect the unity of God's people here. Because we're meant to do this together, not alone. And we're coming up on summer when we all go like 50 million different directions. And so we need to fight to stay connected to one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to care for one another. We need to do this because we're meant to do this Together, blessed are those, blessed are those who do this because we're meant to do it together. Second thing, how we apply this is I think we need to look into this mirror. Now Spurgeon called this psalm a mirror of a gracious heart. In other words, when, when we look at Psalm 119, we're seeing in Psalm 119 the reflection of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a heart that has been changed. And now this heart wants to walk in the law of the Lord. This heart wants to seek him with their whole heart. This heart wants to keep the precepts of the Lord diligently and keep his statutes. That's what a heart wants to do that's been transformed by Jesus. And so when we see in this mirror, we see this. Now, the psalmist doesn't possess this perfectly because he cries out for it in verse five. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. And so we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about progress. And so when we look at Psalm 119, we're seeing what a redeemed heart looks like, and then we can look at it not as a mirror, but we can see it and look at our own hearts in the mirror of God's word and say, do I reflect this? Do do I reflect what I'm seeing in Psalm 119? 
Does my heart want to seek God? Does my heart want to submit to God? Does my heart want to depend on God? Does my heart want to learn from God? And so when you look at the mirror of God's word, what do you see in your heart? What do you see? Does your heart want to seek God? Are you so busy seeking everything else that there's no room to seek him? Does your heart want to submit to him or have you just decided that you're going to be God of your little universe? Do you want to depend on him? Are you saying to God, I got this. You deal with all those other weak people. What do you see? What do you see? God's word will show us what's going on in here. We hold up Psalm 119 and we look at our own heart and like, man, I don't look like this. Now, if all we had in the gospel was a mirror showing us what was wrong, we'd be in a really bad place. Mirrors don't fix us. I mean, most of us stumbled out of bed this morning, walked into the bathroom, looked at the mirror. I mean, and none of us stood in front of the mirror and said, just fix it. None of us looked at the mirror hoping that that mirror is going to change everything we don't like about us. Thankfully, in the covenant teaching of the covenant-keeping God, we, we don't have just a mirror that shows our need. We have a Messiah who came to meet it. That's the good news of the gospel. And so when we look in the mirror and we see all the ways our hearts are not reflecting what God has done in his word, rather than running away from him, God's grace allows us to run to him. And, and, and rather than looking in the mirror and trying to get makeup to cover up all the blemishes that we hope God didn't notice, we get to bring every one of those into the light of his presence. And you know what? He knows they're there. He sees more than you've seen. And the goodness of the gospel is that he sees, he knows, and he loves you fully blemishes and all. He loves you fully. And so when we see in the mirror ways our hearts need to be changed, we don't run from him. We don't try to cover up and make it all right. We run to him and say, this is me. This is me. This is the one you've entered into covenant with. Do you love me? And his answer is hung on a tree. His answer is hung on a cross for you where he demonstrated his love for you and that while we were yet sinners, not fixed, not better, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so when we look in the mirror and we see places our hearts need to be transformed, we bring that to him and say, God, would you change me? You're my only hope. Would you make me like Jesus? And he loves to answer that prayer. Because our God, our covenant-keeping God, loved us so much that even while we were running away from him, our souls getting shriveled and tired and broken and beaten, piling up sin after sin between us and God, God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to take sin away so that we might return to him, our souls satisfied, our sins covered so that we might have a relationship with this God who enters into covenant with his people. 
And so we don't have to run from him. We can run to him, warts and all. And he receives us and he welcomes us. And he says, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. And he saves us and makes us new. So you don't have to be afraid to look in the mirror. You can look at it and go, Jesus, I don't know how you're gonna fix this, but I'm trusting you to do it. That's the good news. That's the covenant teaching of our covenant-keeping God. And it's really good news.